Thank you, Glees. Great to see you all. Oh, there's one. Um, this is a great turnout. We decided, since so many people are interested in presidential lies, we decided next year we're going to call the series just sex. Uh, and Lord knows how many people. Uh, they might be coming out the door. Um, anyway, thank you. I see a lot of returning faces. Uh, um, I'm holding in my hand the New York Times for October 7th of this year. And uh, the headline reads, Law on Lies by Politicians is Found Unconstitutional. Uh, I'm not making this up. Um, the Washington Supreme Court. Turns out there are more than a dozen states in this country that actually have laws on the statute books that make it unlawful to say false things about political candidates. Um, anyway, on October 7th, by a 5-4 to four vote, the Washington Supreme Court added, or just, uh, declared that the, the law of that state was unconstitutional. The notion that the government, rather than the people, may be the final arbiter of truth in political debate is fundamentally at odds with the First Amendment. A dissenting justice wrote, the majority's decision is an invitation to lie with impunity. Anyway, it was the Washington Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court in Washington, that uh, ruled that. But um, anyway, lying with impunity matters less than if you get away with it, I guess, um, which is one of the lessons of, of history. The, um, it's a sensitive subject, actually. We're laughing about it. But uh, in many ways, it goes to the heart of, I think, maybe the current dismay, suspicion, skepticism, bordering on cynicism that so many people feel about government generally. Um, in the British House of Commons, you can't even pronounce the word lie. Um, Churchill famously came up with a, a very Churchillian alternative. Uh, he, he referred to a terminological inexactitude. <laughs> Which uh, must be kind of nice. Um, we, we like to think all of our presidents are like George Washington who, as we all know, couldn't tell a lie. Mark Twain once said, you know, I'm a greater man than George Washington because he couldn't tell a lie, and I can. Uh, <laughs> in fact, George Washington was a very deft liar. Um, after the Revolution, when he went back to Mount Vernon, well, he, he was oppressed, he was as you might imagine, to write his war memoirs. And... Um, he said that he really, um, you know, did, want, did not want to do that. He didn't want people to ascribe vanity to him. In fact, he was very sensitive about his um, relative lack of formal education. <laughs> Interesting thing is, the first thing he did when he got back to Mount Vernon was take out all of his old letter books and correct the syntax and grammar before it could be copied for posterity. So, I don't know, maybe he lied to himself. Um, Jimmy Carter, of course, famously said that he would never lie to us. Uh, he might have done better if he had. <laughs> um, there are lies and there are lies, as we all know. Um, for presidents, they're almost an unavoidable part of the business, um, particularly in wartime. There are campaign promises, which is another whole category of itself. If we were, if we were 
talk about that, we'd be here all afternoon. Um, is, is it a lie for Herbert Hoover's supporters to promise a chicken in every pot? Um, prosperity, as far as the eye can see, in 1928. Is it a lie for Woodrow Wilson's supporters and the president himself to say he kept us out of war? Uh, as a uh, justification for reelecting him to a second term. I suppose technically it's not. He didn't say he'll keep us out of war. The slogan was, he kept us out of war. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, in the last days of the 1940 campaign, a very close race, actually, against uh, Wendell Wilkie, charismatic candidate. Harold Ickes famously referred to him as uh, um, the barefoot boy from Wall Street. Um, actually from a small town in Indiana, and he ran FDR uh, a close race uh, at a time when Europe was uh, being consumed by war. And the great overriding issue that no one really wanted to confront was, were there circumstances under which this country would be dragged into war? And uh, FDR, who was a genius at splitting hairs and sometimes infinitives, um, in the last days of the campaign, uh, told, uh, famously told an audience in Boston that your boys are not going to be sent to fight in foreign wars. And within weeks, of course, basically it changed the, the tone and substance of his comments. Uh, and he had an explanation. He's talking about foreign wars. If we were attacked, that wouldn't be a foreign war. We would simply be responding to a foreign invader, which of course is precisely what happened. Harry Truman is the personification of plain-spoken Midwestern uh, veracity, and I, I think that's uh, that's accurate most of the time. Um, but the Korean War, which erupted in June 1950, represented the uh, inversion of a policy. Um, at Dean Acheson, who was Secretary of State, and, and Truman's strong right arm, went to the National Press Club and gave a speech in which basically he used a map of the world and a map of Asia, and he said quite pointedly that the Korean Peninsula was outside the perimeter of America's defense interests. Now, to this day, historians are debating, did that unwittingly give a green light to the, uh, to the North Koreans? Um, literally, we don't know. Um, needless to say, Truman was quick to disavow it once the invasion from the North actually occurred. And then, of course, most recently, in fact, if you want to really trace, in my opinion, uh, if you want to trace to the origins the cynicism that we feel about government, the inherent, I think, suspicion that many Americans um, harbor for their leaders, it really goes back 40 years to Lyndon Johnson and the credibility gap. And the reason there was a credibility gap was Lyndon Johnson was, uh, he was not economical with taxpayer dollars, but he could be very economical with the truth. Um, in 1964, famously, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, about which uh, there is still a debate raging as to whether exactly there was one attack or two attacks. Um, but there's no doubt that LBJ seized upon this relatively modest incident involving a, a, a North Vietnamese uh, PT boat, in effect, and a much larger American, or a series of American vessels, uh, to justify the expansion of the war. 
uh, there's a kind of lie involved in telling the American people that you can have it all. And Lyndon Johnson didn't pioneer it, um, and he didn't end it. Uh, the notion that you can have guns and butter, that you can have it all, that the government can do it all, uh, that you can do it all, that we can fight wars against poverty and wars in Southeast Asia. Um, but what is really disturbing, I think, is if you look at the, if you listen to the Johnson tapes, and I know some of you may have heard some of them on C-SPAN radio or, or, or in other formats, they're absolutely fascinating because the agony that Lyndon Johnson felt, LBJ said that um, it's uh, not, not difficult for a president to do the right thing. What's hard is for a president to know what the right thing is to do. And that sounds like a cliche. It sounds like a bromide. But if you listen to the Johnson tapes, you come away with this unmistakable sense of personal <clears throat> tragedy because Johnson is debating with himself his own rationale for the war in Vietnam. Uh, you get a sense uh, over and over again that he doesn't believe what he's saying to the American people. And that, it seems to me, uh, ultimately communicated itself to the American people. And I, I don't think we've ever recovered. Obviously, uh, Watergate exacerbated that sense of distrust. Uh, Iran-Contra, um, there are many people who believe the current uh, war in Iraq. Uh, it's interesting how much of this pertains to foreign policy. The um, Iran-Contra, of course, with Ronald Reagan is a classic example. There are, there are wonderful stories about the efforts that those around the president made to bring him around to the viewpoint that, yes, maybe you did trade arms for hostages. Um, I got to know President Reagan in his later years, and I heard him talk about Iran-Contra, and I can guarantee you, to the day he died, he was utterly convinced that he never intended, or even accidentally, uh, was involved in the business of, of trading uh, hostages for, uh, for arms. Um, and likewise, uh, in terms of the law-breaking that went on uh, with uh, providing um, arms to Nicaragua and, the, and to the Contras, um, almost everyone else disagrees. But maybe that's what makes Reagan a leader. Um, because he could see things. Reagan had an extraordinary capacity to convince himself, and, and, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that as critically as it sounds, because if you can't convince yourself, how are you going to convince other people? And Reagan, as we all know, was known as the great communicator. Um, but I think he communicated those things first to himself. Um, and there's a, a White House speechwriter, uh, name escapes me at the moment, but. Um, who was, oh, was Landon, Landon Pervin is his name, and he was brought in and given the unenviable task of writing a speech in which the president would, in effect, apologize for misleading the American people without ever saying he had misled the American people. And that's called threading the needle. And they had to find exactly the right verbal formula with which Reagan was comfortable. And you may remember it. It's been borrowed many times, too many times since. Um, Reagan said, and I don't know the exact words, but the effect that, you know, 
in my heart, I knew that we didn't do anything wrong. However, in my head, I can see how some people might conclude that we had done things wrong. Um, and of course, the all-purpose mistakes were made. Um, but he got through it. And he got through it because Ronald Reagan had established with a critical mass of the American people a reputation as a truth-teller. Not just a charismatic seller of policies, but someone who they believed was authentic. Great irony, the only professional actor ever to be president. No wonder he said that he had concluded that you couldn't do this job if you weren't a bit of an actor. Um, Iraq, maybe we'll get to that in the, I have a hunch we might get to that uh, afterwards. Then there's Richard Nixon, who made lying into an art form. Um, Richard Nixon said to Len Garman, uh, his law partner in New York once, uh, Len, you'll never make a good candidate, you don't know how to lie. And you know what, I don't know whether he was joking or not. Um, Richard Nixon, there's a wonderful scene in Lawrence of Arabia. How many of you have seen Lawrence of Arabia? Well, it's a, you know, the thinking man's epic, one of the last ones made. And a uh, wonderful movie. And there's this marvelous character, worldly, urbane, cynical, a great diplomat, and a, and a very skilled liar, um, played by Claude Rains. And uh, he has a wonderful line that I always thought applied uniquely to the Nixon administration. He distinguished between a man who tells a lie and a man who tells a half lie. He said, a man who tells a lie has hidden the truth. A man who tells a half lie has forgotten where he put it. <laughs> Isn't that great lie? And I think Richard Nixon believed virtually everything he said throughout Watergate. I think he had to, but I think he did um, right up until the end. But I think he was like the man who had forgotten where he put the truth. The irony is, he was a terrible liar. Remember? I mean, watching him, I mean, he'd sweat, and he'd, he'd be visibly uncomfortable, and you, you thought, you know, Hannah Nixon was there in the Oval Office looking over her son's shoulder, you know, reminding him as a good Quaker, you know, this is wrong. And it, it's part of what contributes to this extraordinary psychological, you know, nuance of, of Richard Nixon because I think he, he found himself in a position where the Cold War, you may disagree with me about this, maybe we could talk about it. It seems to me the Cold War had a long-term corrosive effect in many ways. Um, when you're in a fight, a life and death fight for survival, it is not surprising that you find it possible over time easy to justify whatever is necessary. Ends and means take on a whole different dimension. And I think that includes in some cases telling the truth or being completely accurate. I mean, for example, when you think of Dwight Eisenhower and in May of 1960, when the U-2 plane, I mean, this is, talk about 
Talk about disappointment for Ike. In his last year in office, he, he really, he desperately wanted to do something significant to, 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 to turn the heat down in the Cold War and, and to leave office not only as the man who won World War II, but a man who had, who had really definitively turned the corner on the Cold War, the superpower rivalry with the Soviet Union. At the same time, remember, this was the president who had used the CIA in covert ways to overthrow, quote, hostile governments in places like Guatemala and Iran, and who, two weeks before the critical summit meeting of the Western powers that was going to take place in Paris under the General de Gaulle's chairmanship, two weeks before that, he agreed to one final overflight of a spy plane, a U-2 plane, over the Soviet Union. And he had been assured by the CIA that a pilot, you know, if they were ever able, with one lucky shot, to hit this thing, which of course, remember the U-2s flew at very, very high altitudes, if they ever managed to bring this thing down, there's no way in the world that the pilot would survive. Well, Nikita Khrushchev uh, announced one day out of the blue that they had shot down a U-2 plane over the Soviet Union. And Eisenhower, uncharacteristically, in many ways uncharacteristically, uh, denied it. And then, of course, Khrushchev sprung his trap. They had the pilot. Gary Francis Powers had survived against all odds and all the expertise that the CIA could bring to muster. And it was, needless to say, a very large dish of crow that Eisenhower was forced to consume. But he did it manfully. He refused to apologize, as demanded by the Russians. He made it very clear that both sides were spying on each other that that was a necessity in the Cold War, that you had no choice, I mean in the real world, uh, you had no choice but to, to do this. Um, he, went to, he went to Paris, uh, the conference was wrecked, his hopes for some kind of major deal with the Soviets were destroyed along with it. Khrushchev would rather have a short-term propaganda coup, which this of course was, um, and Eisenhower left office in many ways an embittered man. Um, and then of course there's Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> Enough said. <clears throat> um, there are of course lies that are necessitated by scandal by political necessity, if you will. Uh, certainly Watergate uh, falls into that category. Um, there's another kind of political necessity that uh, leads presidents to uh, bend the truth. Please don't misunderstand me, um, but there were many Americans in the summer of 1990 who took issue with George Bush's statement that Clarence Thomas was the most qualified man in America to be on the Supreme Court. Um, 
1863, Abraham Lincoln lied eloquently when he uh, reassured the newspaper editor Horace Greeley, who'd been on his back about emancipation, that uh, the war wasn't about emancipation. Uh, he said, this is a war about saving the Union. If I could save the Union with freeing, or freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could uh, save the Union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save the Union by freeing some slaves and uh, not all of them, I would do that. And the, uh, the irony is that even as he wrote that very forceful uh, assertion of his policies, he was at the same time working on the Emancipation Proclamation to free the slaves. Uh, what's, what gives? Where's the dichotomy? Very simple. Um, politically, he had no way of knowing whether northern armies would sustain a policy of emancipation. Uh, his own leading general, uh, George McClellan, had told him they wouldn't. That if you go ahead and make this war about freeing slaves, the armies will melt away. Lincoln had to take that into consideration, along with the uh, behavior of the border states, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland. So he is weighing the, 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 the pros and cons. Political necessity, moral imperative, military requirement. Uh, and he's literally speaking out of both sides of his mouth. But very eloquently, because he's Lincoln. Um, and I think probably uh, arguably uh, of necessity. And finally you had the kind of political necessity where you tell a lie with a straight face um, and no one really believes it at the time and historians certainly don't believe it. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1937, uh, he's fresh off this enormous overwhelming uh, victory over Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas. He carried all but two states. Uh, he is um, the most powerful uh, of presidents and of course the great danger is hubris, um, believing that you can do anything. Um, and uh, what he decided to do was to remake the Supreme Court, which had throughout his first term frustrated him by striking down one piece of legislation after another uh, that uh, constituted his New Deal. Uh, the fact is, he used to talk about the nine old men. Well, the fact is, they were nine old men, and they were very conservative, and they were hostile to the, uh, to the ideas of the New Deal. But guess what? Under the Constitution, you know, they were playing their role. Um, so what happened was, FDR, sometimes FDR had uncanny political instincts. But once in a while, even great natural politicians screw up. Ronald Reagan demonstrated this when he decided to go to Bitburg to visit a cemetery that, as it turned out, um, had interred their members of Hitler's SS. Um, and he absolutely refused to cancel the visit, uh, not only because he was stubborn, um, but because he had made a pledge to cancel a coal of Germany. And anyway, but I mean, the fact of the matter, and that also came after an overwhelming re-election. That is when presidents are most vulnerable. It's not when they're at 23% in the polls. It, it, it may very well be when they're at 75% in the polls. Um, in any event, FDR decided he would pack the court. Well, he didn't call it packing the court. Uh, and he had to come up with a rationale. So he, he went on national radio and he told the country of his concern for the uh, overwork 
uh, and, the, and the great stress and the strain that was being imposed on these elderly gentlemen uh, who were having trouble keeping up with, uh, with the uh, workload of the court. And he proposed to make their lives easier by appointing one additional justice for everyone who was 70 and over who refused to retire. Well, nobody believed it. I mean, nobody believed it, including his own troops in, on Capitol Hill. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> you ask too much of your supporters. And in the end, of course, um, they rose up and uh, the court packing plan was, uh, was destroyed. Um, of course, Gerald Ford illustrates the perils of telling the truth. Um, in his 1975 State of the Union address, he, did, he made a mistake that no president before and no president since has uh, repeated. He, he stood up before Congress and he said, the State of the Union is not good. Well, the State of the Union wasn't. You had uh, significant inflation and an energy crisis and unemployment uh, nearing a post-war high. Um, there were problems in the Middle East. There were problems with the Soviets. Uh, Gerald Ford made the mistake of telling the truth. Um, and I can assure you it's not, it's not become a habit among uh, presidents since. But the most, I think, um, interesting, the most in some ways uh, instructive and in many ways surprising lies that presidents feel uh, compelled to tell are about themselves and particularly about their health. Um, these days, the health of politicians, think of Fred Thompson's cancer, um, John McCain's cancer, Rudy Giuliani's uh, cancer, Dick Cheney's um, heart problems, the fact is that they inspire more press coverage, it seems, than do uh, the politics of health. For most of our history, we've covered up White House illnesses as much as uh, the press has covered them. And it began at the beginning. The first president to practice the politics of self-denial was the aforementioned George Washington, he who could never tell a lie. Barely a year into his first term, he fell victim to influenza. Now, that doesn't sound dangerous, but this was a particularly virulent, often fatal form in an age before uh, modern medicines. Um, fearing the consequences of public disclosure, the, uh, the, the president had an executive secretary. His name was William Jackson. So he did what modern presidents do. He uh, summoned the leading physician in Philadelphia in secret, a man named John Jones. We don't know exactly what course of treatment Jones and his colleagues prescribed for the illustrious patient. We do know that the leading treatment in the 18th century for congestion of the lung was turnip broth. Inevitably, rumors leaked out, and something close to panic uh, overtook the city. Jefferson wrote, you cannot conceive the public alarm on this occasion. By the way, Jefferson himself was in bed with one of his crippling migraine headaches. When after four anxious days, Washington's fever broke, no one was more relieved than the slavishly pro-administration Gazette of the United States. It printed on the front page, from all that grateful incense rise. In the autumn of 1863, at a time of even greater peril to the nation's survival, 
Abraham Lincoln contracted an apparent case of smallpox. Uh, saying no one is supposed to know, those around the president's bedside uh, labeled his complaint a mild attack of varioloid, 19th century word for smallpox, complete recovery was expected if the president took to his bed, uh, which he did. Characteristically, he found humor in his predicament. Um, remember, he had been beset by office seekers uh, for two and a half years by that point. It's the worst part of the presidency. Uh, and when he was told that his disease was highly contagious, he said, good, at last I have something I can give everyone. <laughs> Chester Arthur is largely and deservedly uh, forgotten today. Um, he, he, uh, he, was, he discovered while he was president that he was dying of Bright's disease. It's actually a kidney uh, condition. And it was kept absolutely a secret. Um, lots of things were kept a secret from the press in Arthur's uh, White House. Uh, one friendly newspaper uh, said that it was pure fiction that the president was ill at all. As indolent in his official duties as he was lethargic in seeking a second term, Arthur finally died uh, in November 1886, uh, keeping his secret more or less to the last. The real secret keeper, though, the, uh, the, 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 the most skilled liar, if you will, in presidential history is Grover Cleveland. He had an abiding distaste for uh, what we would regard as keyhole journalism uh, arising out of the 1884 campaign when it was revealed that he had almost certainly fathered an illegitimate child uh, whom the press named Tom Tidd, uh, little Tom Tidd to be precise, uh, by an enterprising songwriter. Uh, later on, he was uh, married, the only president to be married in the White House, in the Blue Room. Uh, he married his law partner's ward, a woman 22 years old who called him Uncle Cleve. Um, we don't know what she called him after they were married, but in any event, the, uh, the press followed them on their honeymoon in the Maryland mountains, and the president was not, was not amused. Um, he was not amused when their infant daughter, Ruth, uh, was uh, turned into a celebrity uh, for whom the candy bar, the baby Ruth, is uh, named. Um, and he was particularly not amused when, uh, with no evidence at all, they began printing stories that the president beat his wife. Um, he got his revenge in 1893. And I have to remember the background. 1893 is a year of great economic depression in America. Uh, the, uh, a depression that was on a scale with the, quote, Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, there was a financial panic uh, resulting overnight in mass unemployment and, and, and starvation. The government in those days did not have any role to play. This was an act of God, boom and bust. All you could do was wait it out. Uh, basically, people were on their own. So there's this, this, uh, this background of desperation in terms of the economic situation. Um, it coincides with his wife's uh, second pregnancy. Uh, and then that June, June of 1893, the president's doctors confirmed the presence of a quarter-sized growth uh, near his palate. Um, like U.S. Grant, who smoked 20 cigars a day, uh, Grover Cleveland was paying the price for his tobacco habit. Uh, the reluctant patient agreed to early surgery, uh, but on one condition, not a syllable of his condition would be allowed to reach the press. 
Uh, he had his reasons. He said he was expected to weed the country out of the financial crisis, and if the public learned of his condition, then business failures and foreclosures would multiply even beyond the levels they'd already reached. So on June 30th, um, appearing for all the world, like any other busy executive, enjoying a, uh, a holiday, Cleveland strode down the gangway of New York's Pier A and onto the yacht Oneida. The next morning, as the vessel plied the waters of the East River, a Philadelphia surgeon named W.W. Keene removed the malignant tumor along with the left half of the president's upper jaw, replacing the latter with a rubber prosthetic. Tipped off to the procedure by a resentful dental surgeon, there were weeks in those days, E.J. Edwards of the Philadelphia Press wrote a dramatic account of the shipboard operation only to have his own editor denounce the story as, quote, an infamous exploitation of a toothache. The White House undertook what one recent Cleveland biographer calls arguably the greatest instance of stonewalling in pre-Watergate America. Incredibly, this is 1893, the secret held until 1917, when Dr. Keene, not long before his death, finally shared it with the readers of the Saturday Evening Post. The rise of the mass media, as we define the term, did little to pierce the veil of White House secrecy and mendacity when it came to a president's physical or mental health. Woodrow Wilson, we now know, was a sick man when he became president. He became a good deal sicker. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, he was hailed in the wake of World War I by millions of Europeans who turned out to cheer him as a latter-day prince of peace. Um, this is, of course, on the eve of the Versailles Peace Conference, arguably the most important meeting that any American president had ever taken part in. Well, he displayed unmistakable signs of obsessive paranoia at the Versailles Conference in the spring of 1919. The word was put out that the president had a severe bout of flu. The fact is, flu or not, the mercurial Wilson was complaining that his French allies were spying on him. He declared the greens and the reds are mixed up here and there's no harmony. He ordered the furniture in his room rearranged. He was less fortunate in arranging the map of Europe. We now know, after all these years, something we didn't know or only suspected at the time. Um, we now know because his doctor, Carrie Grayson, left a mass of papers to his son and namesake, and those papers have only in the last year surfaced. And they've been donated to the Wilson Library in Embryo in Stanton, Virginia. And among other things, we, we are discovering that Wilson may very well have had at least one additional stroke while president that we did not know about. We also know Wilson, well, Wilson comes back from Versailles and he decides to take his case for the League of Nations to the people. And so he gets on a train in those days before amplification of voice, before air conditioning, 
uh, and he sets off on this grueling speaking tour um, with more than 50 speeches scheduled. Um, a man in robust health would have difficulty completing it. A man who's really living on his reserves, I mean, it was almost a suicide pact. In any event, uh, Wilson comes back from the West Coast and in Pueblo, Colorado, has what doctors would call a vascular incident, serious enough to cancel the rest of the tour. He comes back to Washington, back to the White House, and um, a week later, on October 2nd, in the middle of the night, suffers a massive stroke, which cripples his entire right side. We have only found out in the last year, because of this diary, that contrary to what we'd always been led to believe, Woodrow Wilson was in fact prepared to resign the presidency at that point. The, what we've always believed is that Wilson, because of his mind was disordered, and or more to the point because Mrs. Wilson was terrified that if her husband resigned the office, he would die. He would have nothing to live for. And that has been the story told by historians over and over again. We now know from Dr. Grayson's diary that the president was, at least in theory, prepared to resign. But the vice president, Thomas Marshall, was not prepared to take his place. Amazing story. Then came the ultimate cover-up. This we do know. Mrs. Wilson joined forces with Dr. Grayson to basically mislead the American people. Uh, they couldn't have done it alone. They had help. And the help came from the nation's press. Um, after a February 1920 newspaper interview with another member of Wilson's medical team, the New York Times described as a, quote, service to common sense and truth, this blatant falsehood. This is what the doctor said. The president walks sturdily now, without assistance and without fatigue. As to his mental vigor, is simply prodigious. The, mac, the man was flat on his back, barely functioning. But that's the story that the White House put out, and that's the story that the establishment press accepted. As with the dying Franklin Roosevelt at Yalta, or the refusal of Richard Nixon while hospitalized for viral pneumonia, to burn incriminating tapes, the historical consequences of Wilson's illness are still being debated, which is only appropriate given the fact that until recently, journalists have told us less about presidential incapacity than historians. Warren Harding, when he was summoned to the smoke-filled room in Chicago in 1920 by his fellow senators, was said, all right, what do, you, do you have any skeletons in your closet? Oh my God, Warren Howard had so many skeletons in his closet, he needed another closet. Um, and of course he said no. Well, the fact is, the man had a very serious heart condition, which he didn't tell anyone about, and which led to his death in August of 1923. Um, and immediately, rumors were about that his wife poisoned him because she didn't want him to experience the heartbreak of the, the scandal known as Teapot Dome. More recently, there's a scholarly consensus that she didn't poison him, but should have. Um, 
only in recent years, again, only in the last 10 years, have we discovered that Calvin Coolidge, you know, who was likened to Nero, uh, except uh, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Coolidge slept. Um, the fact is, Coolidge was in the vice of clinical depression for much of his presidency for the, for the most poignant of reasons. In July of 1924, less than a year after he succeeded Harding, he lost his son. Uh, the apple of his eye, 16-year-old Calvin Jr., who went to play tennis on the White House court and raised a blister on his foot and didn't pay any attention to it. And within a few days, it became infected and uh, blood poisoning set in. No penicillin in 1923. Uh, no way really to treat the condition. And the President of the United States sat helpless by the bed of his son thinking, I'm the most powerful man in the world and I can't even keep my son from dying. And at one level, Coolidge actually blamed himself because if he hadn't been president, it never would have happened. And this contributed to a depression, the severity of which is still being debated. So when you hear about Silent Cal, the man who slept 11 hours a day, just think there's another explanation. It wasn't because he was lazy or lethargic. It's because he was, in fact, depressed. Of far greater significance to history was the deteriorating heart of Franklin Roosevelt during the closing days of World War II. Not content to keep their patients conditioned from the press and the public, the doctors attending the president kept it from him as well. Now, there are reporters, of course, in that case, Merriman Smith of the UPI was chasing down rumors about uh, FDR's health, uh, rumors that he was in a Boston hospital near death. Ironically, Roosevelt himself displayed far less curiosity about his condition, his persistent cough, his lack of appetite, not to mention the fact that his doctors were prescribing uh, digitalis pills and frequent chest exams. You'd think if that was your doctor, you'd probably want to know why. And I believe FDR knew why, but he didn't want to know why. Fencing with reporters, the president attributed his condition to flaring sinuses and a stubborn cold. The truth became depressingly apparent to his running mate, Harry Truman, when he joined FDR for lunch two months after D-Day. Beneath a magnolia tree planted by Andrew Jackson, the aging commander-in-chief urged Truman to avoid air travel when campaigning, adding that, this time we may need you. Understandably, Truman revealed none of this when talking for attribution. The fact is, he sat there horrified as the effects of hypertension displayed themselves. Roosevelt could barely pour coffee into a cup. His hand shook so violently. But of course, not a word of that ever reached the public. Instead, Senator Truman, the vice presidential candidate, uh, went out and he met reporters. He said, the president looked fine and ate a bigger meal than I did. And reporters let it go at that. If today's Americans have become familiar with Dick Cheney's enzyme tests, they can thank or blame Dwight Eisenhower 
Ike's September 1955 heart attack was the first presidential health crisis of the nuclear age, and it really is critical because they didn't lie. And why didn't they lie? Two reasons. Because Dwight Eisenhower was Dwight Eisenhower. Because he remembered Woodrow Wilson. He remembered the, uh, the, the consequence of the lies that were told at the time of Wilson's uh, uh, stroke. And, of course, a third reason, the most important reason of all, television. Television makes it harder to lie, or at least to sustain a lie. He was determined to avoid a Wilsonian cover-up. So, he told his press secretary, Jim Haggerty, Haggerty, tell the truth, the whole truth, don't try to conceal anything. Haggerty took him at his word, unleashed a flood of intimate details. Daily briefings before a hundred reporters in Denver ranged from the president's diet and sleeping habits to the color of his pajamas. More than a turning point in journalistic history, Eisenhower's frankness transformed public attitudes toward illness, illnesses once seen as debilitating. The fact that the government went on in orderly fashion soothed popular anxieties, so did the president's return to the White House that fall. Of course, there were limits to official candor. On learning of one hospital bulletin describing his bodily functions in graphic language, Ike remarked snappishly that perhaps they were carrying realism a bit too far. In November 1957, he had a stroke. That caused even Haggerty to fear the consequences should reporters discover that the leader of the free world took a few minutes of oxygen every day and relied on Sikonol to sleep at night. There were limits to official disclosure. To intimates, the president confessed that he was putting off a prostate operation to avoid distasteful publicity. At times, he fantasized about having the procedure done on a cruiser in the middle of a vacation, exactly as Grover Cleveland had misled his journalistic tormentors 70 years earlier. Meanwhile, his political opponents showed scant inclination to emulate his example of candor. In the weeks leading up to the 1960 Democratic Convention, each of the party's leading contenders spread rumors about the other's health. John F. Kennedy alluded to four out of seven presidents during his lifetime who had suffered from heart disease, a none too veiled reference to Lyndon Johnson's coronary in 1955. In retaliation, Johnson's supporters raised questions about Kennedy's long-rumored and publicly denied bout with Addison's disease, a failure of the adrenal glands for which the youthful Massachusetts senator received frequent injections of cortisone and other medications. The truth lay buried for decades in official archives. At the time, the New York Times accepted claims from the Kennedy camp that his candidate could meet, quote, any obligation of the presidency without the need for special medical treatment, unusual rest periods, or other limitations. The great irony, of course, was the um, treatment that he received for Addison's disease left him with a perpetual tan. So he looked healthier than anyone, ironically, though that was far from the case. A similar reticence obscured the war waged over their patients or by Kennedy's White House doctors, Janet Travell and Admiral George Buckley. Fearing possible narcotic addiction, 
Buckley objected to Travell's frequent injections of Novocaine to ease the president's back pain. But when Buckley recruited the New York orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Hans Kraus, to prescribe regular stretching exercises and lengthy therapy sessions for the ailing chief executive, JFK fretted that Kraus's frequent White House visits might lead reporters to question his trademark vitality. Years later, historians discovered one source of his vigor, amphetamine cocktails served up by Dr. Max Jacobson the notorious Dr. Feelgood, whose potions led Kennedy's brother Robert to demand they be tested by the Food and Drug Administration. JFK demurred in his inelegant words, I don't care if it's horse piss, it works. <laughs> Little it changed by October 1965. Lyndon Johnson facing gallbladder surgery and mindful of the political stir caused by his heart attack ten years earlier, arranged for a secret meeting with Dwight Eisenhower at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington. Eisenhower advised LBJ to emulate his own openness with the press. The president would gain credit for being candid, a trait infrequently associated with the Johnson White House. Once persuaded, Johnson relished the theatricality of the situation, Following a successful operation, he greeted reporters by lifting his sports shirt to display a foot-long surgical incision where his gallbladder had been. The resulting photograph became an indelible piece of 60s culture. Adapted by the cartoonist David Levine to mock the president's Vietnam policies, remember the famous cartoon where it became a map of Vietnam and LBJ's belly? It came to symbolize an administration that showed too much and told too little. In the years since, other equally memorable images, Jimmy Carter collapsing while running a strenuous race, or the first George Bush depositing his state dinner in the lap of Japan's prime minister, have provided a kind of medical shorthand for the television audience. And then there's Ronald Reagan. In the summer of 1985, the President of the United States entered Bethesda Naval Hospital, where surgeons successfully operated after discovering an intestinal malignancy. When communicating this news to the public, they made only one mistake. They apparently did not confer with their patient. According to Ronald Reagan, he didn't have cancer. Something inside of him had cancer, and they removed it. <laughs> Typical Reagan. <laughs> Typical Reagan. He sees things through his own lens, and everyone else be damned. In tailoring the facts of his health to fit the sunny contours of his temperament, Reagan deceived no one but himself. Ironically, it was in Bethesda that a recuperating president authorized his national security advisor, Bud McFarlane, to embark upon the shadowy trail that led to the Iran-Contra affair, and it's hard to believe now but there was, in fact, for a while, talk about possibly impeaching the president. More recently, his post-White House diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease has prompted speculation by journalists and others about the final years of the Reagan presidency. I remember Husaidi, the late Husaidi, who knew more about the presidency than anyone in America, uh, telling about a direct encounter he had which he thought was eerie at the time, and even more so in retrospect, uh, following 
Remember those pictures when Reagan went to Moscow and there's that triumphant stroll through Red Square with Mikhail Gorbachev and the president. Um, Hugh Sidey was there, of course, and he talked to Reagan in Red Square. And this was Hugh's words, exact words, it was just like talking to protoplasm. He had nothing to say, no observations to make. Sidey could not reconcile the monosyllabic Reagan of Moscow with the chatty raconteur whose vivid accounts of his early radio career were literally unforgettable. The incident went unreported and would doubtless be forgotten but for his subsequent illness. Reagan's not alone. It's amazing. We now know Hubert Humphrey, of course, died in 1977 of bladder cancer. The first symptoms were detected in 1969. We now know we have the technology that literally could have detected them even earlier. If Humphrey knew in 1967 that he had even the possibility of a fatal illness, would he have run for president in 1968? Should he have run in 1968? In 1972, of course, you had the, the Thomas Eagleton affair, um, which in retrospect, although it didn't do much for the Democratic ticket that year, and it certainly put a ceiling on Senator Eagleton's political prospects, in retrospect may have done more than anything else to bring the subject of, of depression and mental illness uh, out of the closet, not just the political closet, but out of the closet uh, generally. Um, and then, of course, there was Paul Songus uh, in 1992, the former senator from Massachusetts, who was apparently quite candid in telling people that he had had cancer and that it had been defeated and it, now we learned after the fact that he was not uh, entirely candid that his doctors in fact were part of a conspiracy of, of silence uh, to suggest that uh, there was no sign, no recurrence of the disease. Well, Paul Songus died on what would have been the next to last day of his first term. Um, in 1996 Senator Dole, who was under special pressure because of his age, um, Senator Dole appeared before the National Governors Association and said, truthfully enough, my weight is lower than Clinton's, my cholesterol is lower than Clinton's, my blood pressure is lower than Clinton's, but I'm not going to make health an issue in 1996. Later that day, President Clinton spoke to the same gathering, uh, and he said actually he believed his, that his resting pulse rate was in fact lower than Dole's, but that wasn't Dole's fault. As he put it, <clears throat> I don't have to deal with Phil Graham uh, every day. When Adlai Stevenson used his closing television address of the 1956 campaign to sow seeds of doubt about Dwight Eisenhower's chances to survive a second term, and of course the prospect of Richard Nixon becoming president, he was roundly criticized for a shocking lapse of taste. A half a century later, Saturday Night Live regularly spoofs Cheney's heart condition. Um, and I think most people would think openness is better than taste. If today's journalists are more reluctant to be co-conspirators in a guileful tradition as old as the Republic, one thing at least has not changed. Hugh Sidey told me before he died that the White House staff today, through it all, 
remains every bit as jealous of information as presidential doctors are possessive of their patient. That it took years for the public to discover how close Ronald Reagan came to dying in the wake of John Hinckley's assassination attempt in March of 1981 uh, only confirms Sidey's observation. No one would be happier than Grover Cleveland. Thank you very much. And now we've got microphones, questions, comments, observations. Oh, come on. Don't be bashful. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, that's a book. I, I mean, you know, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think probably each of you would have your own answer, influenced no doubt by your political preferences. I mean, to be blunt. Um, I, I, I will say this. I do believe, and I, I don't mean to pick on him, <laughs> but um, I think there's a tragic element to Lyndon Johnson. Don't get me wrong. I think uh, Johnson's an almost Shakespearean figure, and he wanted to do good. He wanted very sincerely, very genuinely, he wanted to fight a war on poverty. He, you know, he wanted to use government to, to increase opportunity for people. He wanted to write injustices that were centuries in the making. All of that said, the fact of the matter is, um, I think he bears an enormous uh, weight of responsibility for undercutting, maybe fatally, uh, the public confidence in the White House. Now, you could you could say maybe maybe we were too credulous, you know, maybe we maybe we had an unrealistic uh, view, maybe it was inevitable, maybe it's even healthy, but it's not healthy. The extremes to which the cynicism and skepticism and reflexive disbelief have taken hold in this country, and I think it really began um, with Lyndon Johnson's credibility gap. So, you know, sometimes people have the best of motives and they produce the worst of results. Yeah? Thank you. Because of how he coped with depression? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think we think more of him. I, I think, yeah, the, the, the question basically was in terms of Lincoln's, uh, you know, alleged uh, bouts of depression and, and how he dealt with that, and should we think more of him, less of him, whatever. Um, no, I think, first of all, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, well, the fact of the matter is that it destigmatizes 
the disease of depression. Um, the fact that an Abraham Lincoln could struggle periodically with this. And to be very honest with you, and I don't pretend to be an authority, I think, I think it's easy to exaggerate the extent to which Lincoln was, quote, depressed. Uh, there are incidents in his life when we know uh, something was almost suicidal. There's no doubt that he was prone to what the 19th century would call the hypos, melancholy. Um, we would call depression. The fact that with that monkey on his back, he was able to achieve what he achieved and, and to do for this country and the world what he did, uh, it seems to me has got to be uh, make the achievement even more remarkable than it is already. And the further uh, fact that it, as I say, that it removes the stigma from a condition that for a long time was treated in this country as something shameful, something you didn't talk about, something you tried to keep uh, under wraps. Um, but again, you know, my reference to Senator Eagleton, uh, that incident, I think, in, in, a, in a curious sort of way, it's like when Mrs. Ford had her breast cancer operation, um, it brought this subject out of the closet and saved countless lives as a result. Who knows how many lives, the quality of life has been improved because belatedly uh, we began to, to, to grapple with the reality of, uh, of uh, depression and other emotional illnesses. Yeah? You talk a lot about health and, and war and that sort of thing, but what about presidential lives to the Congress? I mean, that, that, when that happens, then you have decision-making made on lies, and it seems to me that that would be a really, really, not only dangerous, but very unfortunate thing to have happen. Give me an example. Well, uh, if, if you didn't tell the Congress uh, of situations that you actually knew, even about war, uh, it seems to me, and is there any evidence of any of the the presidents that you think were the worst liars doing that sort of thing also? Listen, Franklin Roosevelt is uh, in the Holy Trinity of uh, presidents, along with Lincoln and Washington, and he was a most skillful um, prevaricator. Um, and I think history, uh, by and large, has, uh, has been grateful. Um, there's no doubt that he, you know, skidded around the truth uh, often in uh, in dealing with Congress in the late 1930s and uh, because he had come to the conclusion, I believe, fairly early on that like it or not, this country at some point would have to fight uh, the fascist dictators. Uh, that is not, by any means, a conclusion that most in Congress had come to. And, 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 and Roosevelt's genius, slippery as it may have been, was to, to move the country in a direction it didn't want to go, uh, not always being completely truthful, or telling the truth but not the whole truth about um, where his policies were going to lead the country, um, in fact, inching toward a state of war with Germany without, you know, and trying to put the onus 
on the Germans. Um, by the way, I've been asked by more people, do you think he knew about Pearl Harbor? Uh, and the answer is no. I mean, I, that, that's my thought. I don't think he knew about Pearl Harbor. I think there was a, I think there was a, I think there was a consensus that it was very likely we were about to be attacked by the Japanese. But no one, you have to, you know, hindsight makes things look inevitable. At the time, it's like it's why conspiracy theories flourish, because it's hard to believe. You know, there's a great line in Washington. Most of the time, it's stupidity over conspiracy. You know, <laughs> or incompetence. I mean, it, it it would require such a leap of the imagination to believe that the Japanese from their home islands had the capacity or the audacity to attack Pearl Harbor. It, it, was, it was literally inconceivable. There were lots of more credible targets, including the Philippines, um, which of course turned out to be a target. So, you know, anyway, but, but that notion that, uh, that the great lie, you know, that FDR, well remember Claire Booth Luce, Young people don't know Claire Booth Luce, but um, the great playwright, polemicist, congresswoman from Connecticut, married to Henry Luce of Time Magazine. She had it was a great line. She said, "FDR lied us into war," and there are still people today, to this day, who believe it. I don't. But anyway, yeah. You're, you're talking about president. How about some of the presidential advisors who were great? <laughs> Give me an example. Well, beyond the example, maybe just... Oh, but he's a diplomat. <laughs> Remember the old line, an ambassador is someone who's sent abroad to lie for his country? Well, you know, when you're Secretary of State, that's a ambassador squared. Um... No, I, 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 I think that, uh, yeah, I think Kissinger probably has never subjected to himself to an, uh, a lie detector. Um, but uh, he would say the proof's in the pudding. Well, yeah. No. Now, Hitler did something really stupid. Here's, again, stupidity over conspiracy. Um, Hitler never had to declare war on us. Hitler didn't have to be at war with us. If, you know, Hitler, I mean, if you were Hitler, the last thing you wanted to do was engage. We didn't declare war on Hitler. What happened was, in, on December 4th, 1941, the Chicago Tribune, that was the day that FDR had put the Chicago Sun on the streets because he hated Colonel McCormick and he wanted, to, he wanted to you know run him out of town so he got Marshall Field to put all his money into the Chicago Sun and the Colonel wanted to blow the Sun out of you know before it could rise he wanted to blow it out of the water so um, he his reporters in Washington got a hold of the Army's war plans to this day no one knows exactly who supplied them I personally having researched it believe FDR supplied them 
uh, because he knew exactly what, how, what the colonel would do and what the consequences would be. But nevertheless, so on December 4th, 1941, the day the sun first appears in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune blares FDR's war plans. And it, you know, basically the army always has war plans, you know, for all sorts of scenarios. And this one envisioned an invasion of Europe with 10 million men. And um, needless to say, three days later, that story was forgotten. But not in Berlin. Because several days after Pearl Harbor, Adolf Hitler convened the Reichstag and declared war on the United States. And as part of his justification, he cited the Chicago Tribune story. Yeah? Sure, but he didn't have to do it. I mean, you know, if you're Adolf Hitler, you don't have to do, you know. I mean, um, it was a, it was a, well, let's just say it was not in his interest, geopolitical or otherwise, to engage the United States in a full-scale conflict. And in theory, theory only, in theory, you know, he might have stayed out and, um, it would have been a very different war. Yeah? Could a honest realist be elected president of the United States? Sure. Who, who, who just optimism at all costs. And really, could a really Well, optimism can be a lie. Uh, <laughs> under some circumstances. I mean, removing optimism, can an honest person, someone who cherishes the truth, be elected and governed? Yes, of course. They, they are, they, and they are elected all the time. Uh, sometimes the office requires them to amend their truthfulness. But, no, I don't mean to leave for a moment the, the impression that uh, skillful lying is a prerequisite either to get elected or to govern. But it's a nice arrow to have in your quiver. Um, one, one more? Anyone? Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah, but first of all, he was supposed to die before he ever hit the ground. I mean, that was the point. Um, first of all, he wasn't supposed to be hit. You know, um, and again, you know, it illustrates as in the end, what's more relevant than lies is luck. <laughs> you know, and in this case, Ike had wretched luck. On the other hand, why? Why did he take the chance two weeks before the most critical meeting of his presidency? Uh, I'm sure he kicked himself. Um, and, and <laughs> he may have kicked others after Powers uh, turned out to be uh, to be alive. It didn't. It didn't say much for the uh, CIA's powers. Thank you very much.